Hello, and welcome to day six of A Miserable Year. I am Anthony Adler, and I'm going to be reading you the whole of Le Miserable. That's the podcast. In today's chapter, we hear about the bishop's two luxuries, and we also have our first encounter with some very important silverware. Enjoy! Le Miserable, Volume 1, Fontaine, Book the First, A Just Man, Chapter 6, Who Guarded His House for Him. The house in which he lived consisted, as we have said, of a ground floor and one story above, three rooms on the ground floor, three chambers on the first, and an attic above. Behind the house was a garden, a quarter of an acre in extent. Two women occupied the first floor. The bishop was lodged below. The first room, opening on the street, served him as a dining room. The second was his bedroom, and the third his oratory. There was no exit possible from this oratory except by passing through the bedroom, nor from the bedroom without passing through the dining room. At the end of the suite, in the oratory, there was a detached alcove with a bed for uses in cases of hospitality. The bishop offered this bed to country curates whom business or the requirements of their parishes brought to Dean. The pharmacy of the hospital, a small building which had been added to the house and abutted on the garden, had been transformed into a kitchen and a cellar. In addition to this, there was in the garden a stable, which had formerly been the kitchen of the hospital, and in which the bishop kept two cows. No matter what the quantity of milk they gave, he invariably sent half of it every morning to the sick people in the hospital. I am paying my tithes, he said. His bedroom was tolerably large and rather difficult to warm in bad weather. As wood is extremely dear at Dean, he hit upon the idea of having a compartment of boards constructed in the cowshed. Here he passed his evenings during seasons of severe cold. He called it his winter salon. In this winter salon, as in the drawing room, there was no other furniture than a square table in white wood and four straw-seated chairs. In addition to this, the dining room was ornamented with an antique sideboard painted pink in watercolours. Out of a similar sideboard, properly draped with white napery and imitation lace, the bishop had constructed the altar which decorated his oratory. His wealthy penitents and the sainted women of Dean had more than once assessed themselves to raise the money for a new altar for Monsignor's oratory. On each occasion, he had taken the money and given it to the poor. The most beautiful of altars, he said, is the soul of an unhappy creature, consoled and thanking God. In his oratory there were two straw pieds-dieu, and there was an armchair, also in straw, in his bedroom. When, by chance, he received seven or eight persons at one time, the prefect or the general, or the staff of the regiment and garrison, or several pupils from the little seminary, the chairs had to be fetched from the winter salon in the table, the pieds-dieu from the oratory, and the armchair from the bedroom. In this way, as many as eleven chairs could be collected for the visitors. A room was dismantled for each new guest. It sometimes happened that there were twelve in the party. The bishop then relieved the embarrassment of the situation by standing in front of the chimney if it was winter, or by strolling in the garden if it was summer. 
There was still another chair in the detached alcove, but the straw was half gone from it, and it had but three legs, so that it was of service only when propped against the wall. Mademoiselle Baptistine had also in her own room a very large easy chair of wood, which had formerly been gilded, and which was covered with flowered pekin. But they had been obliged to hoist this berger up to the first story through the window, as the staircase was too narrow. It could not, therefore, be reckoned among the possibilities in the way of furniture. Mademoiselle Baptistine's ambition had been to be able to purchase a set of drawing-room furniture in yellow Utrecht velvet, stamped with a rose pattern, and with mahogany and swan's neck style, with a sofa. But this would have cost five hundred francs at least, and in view of the fact that she had only been able to lay forty-two francs and ten sous for this purpose in the course of five years, she had ended up by renouncing the idea. However, who is there who has attained his ideal? Nothing is more easy to present to the imagination than the bishop's bedchamber. A glazed door opened on the garden. Opposite this was the bed, a hospital bed of iron with a canopy of green serge. In the shadow of the bed, behind a curtain, were the utensils of the toilet, which still betrayed the elegant habits of a man of the world. There were two doors, one near the chimney, opening into the oratory, the other near the bookcase, opening into the dining room. The bookcase was a large cupboard with glass doors filled with books. The chimney was of wood painted to represent marble, and habitually without fire. In the chimney stood a pair of fire-dogs of iron, ornamented above with two garlanded vases, and flutings, which had formerly been silver with a silver leaf, which was a sort of episcopal luxury. Above the chimney-piece hung a crucifix of copper, with the silver worn off, fixed on a background of threadbare velvet in a wooden frame from which the gilding had fallen. Near the glass door, a large table with an inkstand, loaded with a confusion of papers and with huge volumes. Before the table, an armchair of straw. In front of the bed, a prie-dieu, borrowed from the oratory. Two portraits in oval frames were fastened to the wall on each side of the bed. Small gilt inscriptions on the plain surface of the cloth at the side of these figures indicated that the portraits represented, one, the Abbe of Chaliot, Bishop of Saint-Claude, the other, the Abbe Tortu, Vicar-General of Age, Abbe of Grandchamp, Order of Citroux, Diocese of Chartres. When the bishop succeeded to this apartment after the hospital patients, he had found these portraits here, and he had left them. They were priests, and probably donors, two reasons for respecting them. All that he knew about these two persons was that they had been appointed by the king, one to his bishopric, the other to his benefice, on the same day, the 27th of April, 1785. Madame Maigrois having taken the pictures down to dust, the bishop had discovered these particulars written in whitish ink on a little square of paper, yellowed by time, and attached to the back of the portrait of the Abbe au Grand Champ with four wafers. At his window he had an antique curtain of a coarse woolen stuff, which finally became so old that in order to avoid the expense of a new one, Madame Maigrois was forced to take a large seam in the very middle of it. This seam took the form of a cross. The bishop often called attention to it. How delightful that is, he said. All the rooms in the house, without exception, those on the ground floor as well as those on the first floor, were whitewashed, which is a fashion in barracks and hospitals. However, in their latter years, Madame Magloire discovered beneath the paper which had been washed over, 
paintings, ornamenting the apartment of Mademoiselle Baptistine, as we shall see further on. Before becoming a hospital, this house had been the ancient parliament house of the bourgeois, hence the decoration. The chambers were paved in red bricks, which were washed every week, with straw mats in front of all the beds. Altogether, this dwelling, which was attended to by the two women, was exquisitely clean from top to bottom. This was the sole luxury which the bishop permitted. He said, That takes nothing from the poor. It must be confessed, however, that he still retained from his former possessions six silver knives and forks, and a soup ladle, which Madame Magloire contemplated every day with delight, as they glistened splendidly upon the coarse linen cloth. And since we are now painting the Bishop of Dean as he was in reality, we must add that he had said more than once, I find it difficult to renounce eating from silver dishes. To this silverware must be added two large candlesticks of massive silver, which he had inherited from a great aunt. These candlesticks held two wax candles, and usually figured on the bishop's chimney piece. When he had anyone to dinner, Madame Magloire lighted the two candles and set the candlesticks on the table. In the bishop's own chamber, at the head of his bed, there was a small cupboard in which Madame Magloire locked up the six silver knives and forks and the big spoon every night. But it is necessary to add that the key was never removed. The garden, which had been rather spoiled by the ugly buildings which we have mentioned, was comprised of four alleys in a cross form, radiating from a tank. Another walk made the circuit of the garden, skirted the white wall which enclosed it. These alleys left behind them four square plots rimmed with box. In three of these, Madame Magloire cultivated vegetables. In the fourth, the bishop had planted some flowers. Here and there stood a few fruit trees. Madame Magloire had once remarked, with a sort of gentle malice, Monseigneur, you who turn everything to account have nonetheless one useless plot. It would be better to grow salads there than bouquets. Madame Magloire, retorted the bishop, you are mistaken. The beautiful is as useful as the useful. He added after a pause, more so, perhaps. This plot, consisting of three or four beds, occupied the bishop almost as much as did his books. He liked to pass an hour or two there, trimming, hoeing, and making holes here and there in the earth, into which he dropped seeds. He was not as hostile to insects as the gardener could have wished to see him. Moreover, he made no pretensions to botany. He ignored groups in consistency. He made not the slightest effort to decide between tournefort and the natural method. He took part neither with the buds against the cotyledons, nor with Jusseux against Linnaeus. He did not study plants. He loved flowers. He respected learned men greatly. He respected their ignorance still more. And, without ever failing in these two respects, he watered his flower beds every summer evening with a tin watering pot painted green. The house had not a single door which could be locked. The door of the dining room, which, as we have seen, opened directly on the cathedral square, had formerly been ornamented with locks and bolts like the door of a prison. The bishop had had all this ironwork removed, and this door was never fastened, either by night or by day, with anything except the latch. All that the first passer-by had to do at any hour was to give it a push. 
At first, the two women had been very much tried by this door, which was never fastened, but Monsieur de Dean had said to them, Have bolts put on your rooms, if that will please you. They had ended by sharing his confidence, or at least by acting as though they shared it. Madame Maigloire alone had frights from time to time. As for the bishop, his thought can be found explained, or at least indicated, in the three lines which he wrote on the margins of a Bible. This is the shade of difference. The door of the physician should never be shut. The door of the priest should always be open. On another book, entitled Philosophy of the Medical Science, he had written this other note. Am not I a physician like them? I also have my patients. And then, too, I have some whom I call my unfortunates. Again he wrote, Do not inquire the name of him who asks a shelter of you. The very man who is embarrassed by his name is the one who needs shelter. It chanced that a worthy curé, I know not whether it was the curé of Colombro or the curé of Pompieri, took it into his head to ask him one day, probably at the instigation of Madame Magloire, whether Monsieur was sure that he was not committing an indiscretion to a certain extent in leaving his door unfastened day and night at the mercy of any one who should choose to enter, and whether, in short, he did not fear lest some misfortune might occur in a house so little guarded. The bishop touched his shoulder with a gentle gravity, and said to him, Nisi dominus custodiere donum, in vanum vigilant qui custodiunt iam. Unless the Lord guard the house, in vain do they watch who guard it. Then he spoke of something else. He was fond of saying, There is a bravery of the priest, as well as the bravery of a colon of dragoons. Only, he added, ours must be tranquil. <laughs>